You're listening to the Jesus for Everyone podcast, a podcast where we talk about the intersection of faith and social justice and what a first century Jewish prophet of the poor from Galilee offers us today in our work of love, compassion, and justice. To support this podcast, go to RenewedHeartMinistries.com and click Donate. For wealthy North American Christians who prize their individual wealth and liberties over what is best for society and our collective thriving, I think this week's reading offers so much to consider. Christians have always come up with ways around stories like these in the Gospels. Hi, everyone. Welcome to this week's episode of the Jesus for Everyone podcast. My name is Herb Montgomery, and this is episode 391. Our title this week is Getting Free from Fear and Facing the Future Together. And our reading this week is from the Gospel of Mark. This is Mark 10, 17 through 31. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. You shall not defraud. Honor your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, all of these I have kept since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said, go sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. At this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said again, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were even more amazed and said to each other, who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Then Peter spoke up, we have left everything to follow you. Truly I tell you, Jesus replied, no one has left home or brothers or sisters or mothers or father or children or fields for me and for the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age, homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, fields, along with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. Many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. So our passage this week, it it includes a criticism on wealth, and there's a long history of those benefiting from systems that create or maintain wealth disparity and inequity, trying to soften uh, our reading this week. And it'll be helpful, too, to remember, just to hold in our mind the reality that the early Jesus movement, it consisted almost primarily of poor peasants. And in addition, multiple narratives in our sacred text indicate that wealth redistribution was a central characteristic of early Jesus communities. And consider these examples from the book of Acts. This is Acts 2. 
42 through 47. It says, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teachings and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles, and all the believers were together and they had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God. And enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their numbers daily those who were being saved. In Acts 4 32 through 35, we read again All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had with great power. The apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and God's grace was so powerfully at work in them. Uh, in them all, that there were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them and brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. The Torah also regulated debt in ways that were intended to eliminate poverty in the community. I see these narratives and acts as having that same spirit, that, that spirit of war against poverty with, with the authors realizing that poverty is a human-made reality and not not something that just simply must always exist. In Deuteronomy 15, 1 through 4, it says, at the end of every seven years, you must cancel debts. This is how it is to be done. Every creditor shall cancel any loan they have made to fellow to a fellow Israelite. They shall not require payment from anyone among their own people because the Lord's time for canceling debts has been proclaimed. You may require payment from a foreigner, but you must cancel any debt your fellow Israelite owes you. However, there need be no poor people among you, for in the land the Lord your God is giving you to possess as your inheritance, he will richly bless you. So so again, <clears throat> it's this idea that there need not be any poor among us. And whatever humans create, remember, they can also be changed by human, that can also be changed by human choices too. Poverty is not a universal way it has to be. It presents a critique against the the systems that create it, and and the greater the wealth disparity within economic systems, the stronger the critique for those who who have the heart to listen and and to understand. The book of Acts includes another narrative that illustrates the the wealth redistributing nature of of the early Jesus community. In Acts five one through six, we read. Now, a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. And remember the two passages from Acts we've already read. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has filled your heart so that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept yourself some of the money you received from the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied just to human beings, but to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. And great fear seized all who heard what had happened. Then some young men came, wrapped up his body, and carried him out and buried him. So whoever included this story in the early narratives of Acts, they wanted the movement's ethic of wealth redistribution, their ethic of resource sharing, 
their their war on poverty to be taken seriously. And I would go so far as to say deadly seriously. In our narrative in Mark, though, this week, Jesus recites the phrase when he's repeating the Decalogue. He says, you shall not defraud. And Chad Myers I think makes a strong case that this phrase is intended to teach the listener, those who heard this story, something. On page 273 of his book, uh, uh, um, Binding the Strong Man, he writes, this is our first indication that much more is being discussed in this story than the personal failures of this one man. Judgment is being passed upon the wealthy class. We read this story to individualistically in our culture today. The story is not about eliminating wealthy individuals or, or individual net worth. Rather, it's about eliminating an entire wealthy class. It's a critique of, of a system that creates such wealth disparity. It's not a hate narrative against wealthy individuals. And consider that the story even mentions that Jesus looked at the man and loved him. And rather than expressing hate against the rich, I want to try and understand them. Society and systemic change begins with understanding. And I do believe that massive amounts of wealth, billionaire status especially, does something negative to the soul of its possessors. And when when they're an, an exception, especially in their society, when so many around them have so much less, it must be damaging to have to tranquilize one's conscience in these cases. But wealth exercises a stronghold on its possessors, and it's, it's one that's rooted in fear. Our society is a system of manufactured scarcity. It's a reality that's been created where, where we believe there's not enough for everyone. And this leads to anxiety and, and the fear specifically of having at some point in the future of going without. And this fear drives an endless effort of accumulation. And too often, it's accumulation at someone else's expense. And that drive to accumulate and in turn leads to, to holding more than we need for fear of that, that, that at some time in the future, we may have to go without. And eventually, wealth hoarding, that too must be protected against others who have much less. And it's typically protected through violence. And the, the whole system really is is violent. And within such systems of, of manufactured scarcity, too many people solve the scarcity problem, but only for themselves, to, to hell with everyone else. Jesus instead offered an alternative in his own society that I believe we should consider today. He called people to form communities where members pulled their resources and all they, they all worked together to ensure that everyone in the community was taken care of. From his very first call to the disciples to leave their fishing nets and follow him, Jesus called people away from individualistic solutions to scarcity. Whether that scarcity is natural or whether it's manipulated, Jesus called them away from those individualistic solutions to communal solutions. And yet it's not easy to get free of the fear of, of going without that drives 
the hoarding of wealth. In our story, Jesus talks about camels having an easier time getting through the eyes of needles. And the camel needle illustration, that too, has a long history of being softened. Greek scribes or copyists exchanged the word, the Greek word camel in the Greek for the Greek word for rope because it differs by only one Greek letter. And again, the impossibility of the original illustration of a camel and a needle becomes softened. softened. It, it, it implies that the task wasn't impossible. You just had to trim the rope just a little bit so it could get through uh, the needle. And, and the communities that followed them also created the fiction. Some of you have maybe even heard this, that, that the needle Jesus referenced was actually a narrow gate or pass in Jerusalem that was hard but not impossible for camels to go through. And, and, and again, th- that was completely untrue. But again, it softened the, the illustration. Jesus's point is that just as a camel can't go through the eye of a needle, so the wealthy cannot enter the reign of God because a society under the reign of God has no wealthy class. That class has been eliminated. This is why the gospel repeatedly says one cannot serve both God and money. But our goal, remember, it isn't universal poverty. As the Apostle Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 8, 13-14, our desire is not that others might be relieved while you are hard-pressed, but that there might be equality. At the present time, your plenty will supply what they need so that in turn, their plenty will supply what you need. The goal is equality. Jesus offered a community structured so that there was enough for everyone's needs, but not everyone's greeds. Our passage in Mark bears this out. Those who had the courage to divest from individualistic wealth in favor of a genuine commonwealth, uh, they would risk persecution from those that were benefiting from the inequities of the status quo. But along with persecutions, they would also receive, as as it says in the passage, a hundred times as much in this present age. So, so what does that mean? They wouldn't receive that individually as, a, as the prosperity gospel preachers teach. They would receive that communally under this model, no matter what the future brought, we wouldn't face it alone. We would have each other and we could face whatever the future holds with our combined resources. This is a community where those the present system makes last, they're first. And those that the present system makes first are last because there is no more first or last. We're all simply human beings deserving of human dignity, survival, and thriving. And Jesus's vision for human community, it offered uh, the poor in the first century a path for thriving. But, but the economic teachings of the gospel, I think, are so little understood by most Christians today. Consider Christian attitudes to the Occupy movement, for example, a few years ago. Uh, consider the more recent Christian responses to AOC's dress with the slogan, tax the rich on the back of it, uh, just a couple weeks ago. Or, or the Christian response 
response to the the present movement opposing uh, an economy of billionaires. Uh, for wealthy North American Christians who prize their individual wealth and liberties over what is best for society and our collective thriving, I think this week's reading offers so much to consider. Christians have always come up with ways around stories like these in the Gospels. But imagine with me this week a community that didn't try to get around them. What if we allowed ourselves to be confronted by stories like these? What would it look like if we set our security and our hope not on wealth accumulation, but on creating the kind of communities that made wealth obsolete? In 1 Timothy 6.17, it says, Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who provi- who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Heart group application this week, number one, share something that spoke to you from this week's e-site or podcast episode with your heart group. Number two, what could a community that makes wealth obsolete look like? Would this community have to be religious or could it be secular as well? What safeguards would have to be in place for both and discuss that with your group? And then number three, what can you do this week, big or small, to continue setting in motion the work of shaping our world into a safe, compassionate, just home for everyone? Thanks for checking in with us today, right where you are. Keep living in love, choosing compassion, taking action, and working towards justice. I love each one of you dearly. I'll see you next week.